This morning, we are going to look at Hebrews chapter 12, and I want you to stay there, but we're also going to be mainly in Genesis chapter 4, because uh, I think both of these particular passages are tied together in a very strong and a very important way. Uh, I've been sort of hinting uh, for the last several months that there is going to come a time when we are going to walk through the book of Hebrews, uh, verse by verse, so to speak, and I've been uh, seemingly teasing that for a while, and once again, we're going to kind of tease that this morning, (laughs) giving you a preview of why I think that the book of Hebrews is one of, if not the most important book in the entire Bible. Uh, And I think you're going to see that here this morning. Uh, What Hebrews does is essentially uh, show us that the whole key to understanding this book of Revelation that we know as the scriptures is this man named Jesus. Who, as the writer to the Hebrews says in verse 24 of chapter 12, is this mediator of the new covenant. But what I love here, what he does, especially in chapter 12, is this is sort of a culminating point in which he explicitly states his thesis. If you want sort of a sneak preview of what the the whole premise of Hebrews is about, it's essentially three words. Jesus is better. In fact, you could summarize the whole 13 chapter letter that the author here writes in those three words. Jesus is better. In fact, that's what he's essentially doing. If you want to sort of take a bird's eye view of Hebrews, it's essentially a 13 chapter sermon, 13 point sermon, so it would be a very long sermon, <laughs> but it's essentially one extended sermon where this, this apostle, this preacher, this writer here is showing and proving and demonstrating that Jesus is superior to all of the other ways of religion and faith. And in fact, go flip back a couple pages to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6, because notice how this idea of Jesus' betterness, so to speak, is explicitly stated in verse 6. Notice, he says, but now hath he, that is Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. So here again, he's explicitly stating, so you don't miss the point, that this Jesus, he has a more excellent, he has a better ministry that he has come to inaugurate, and which is the better covenant of his blood, which also gives us better promises. And we can go on in all the other chapters and note the same things, especially note chapter 9 is an incredible chapter where we are seeing Jesus as the better high priest, we might say. And all of which, which I won't belabor the point, brings us to that verse in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, which is to me one of the most important verses that we could ever read. Again, notice what the author says. Again, he's writing to this church and notice... Actually, I'll just back up a little bit. Notice in verse 18, as he is sort of introducing this topic, as he says, For we are not come unto the mount. And what he's about to do is he's about to compare and contrast what it looks like for the church to come to the church and what it looks like for the church to not come to the church. And what I mean by that is he compares it to uh, this sort of coming of the church into the assembly between Sinai and Zion. So when he's describing that mount, as he says in verse uh, number 18, that's burning with fire and blackness and darkness, he's referencing Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. And he says, that's not how we assemble. 
That is not how we gather. That is not what makes us joyful and rejoicing as we come. Why? Because he says in verse 22, we are come unto Mount Zion. We are come unto the promises of the living God. And as he says, we are come to Jesus, verse 24. The mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling and which he adds that speaketh better things than that of Abel. This verse is remarkable to me as it I think is so elemental to consider when we consider coming to church at all. This is all for us right here as he says in verse 23 this general assembly in the church of the firstborn which is also us by faith. So how do we come to church this morning? How do we come to church at all on any morning of the year? Or any Sunday evening if you do. Which again, commercial, come to Sunday evenings. It's a great time to come and enjoy more fellowship and worship and diving into God's word. But I would say, how do we enter these doors of this church building? I think this is all for us right here. All for us in this text, especially Hebrews 12, but also I think it brings us to Genesis 4. Because if we hope to understand these, quote, better things that Jesus' blood speaks, I think we have to, we are obliged to understand what the blood of Abel speaks of. For that, we have to go to Genesis 4. We'll come back to Hebrews uh, several times throughout the rest of this sermon. So you might keep a bookmark there or something, because we'll be going back there shortly. But Genesis 4 is a remarkable chapter. It's, of course, the story of Cain and Abel, a very familiar story. Perhaps it was one of the very earliest ones you might have memory of in your days at Sunday school. It's a common story with very familiar themes. But I wonder if we've ever considered the story of Cain and Abel as one that is foundational to all that we believe. Because I think it is. I think especially the connecting point between this story and Hebrews 12, it shows us quite clearly that this story is foundational to our church attendance, to our church faithfulness, to our ability to gather and assemble here at all. As chapter 4 begins, the creation that God had spoken into existence in the earlier chapters of the Genesis record has now been polluted. That very good creation, the sparkling gem of God's words has come out and now it's corrupted. Sin and death has invaded through the rebellion of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And now they have been exiled out of God's presence entirely, out of the garden. Remember those wonderful enjoyments that they enjoyed. That close, intimate fellowship that they had with God the Father was now but a memory. And if you go to the end of chapter 3 actually, it says that God drove out the man. And he placed at the east of the garden, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So now this new life that they are now getting used to is the life under the curse. And it's one in which the presence that they enjoyed with Jesus, with God their father, their their creator, was now guarded by angels who are armed to the gills. It's a very starkly different world that we enter into in Genesis 4. Much different than the perfect lush creation that we are introduced to. Because now sin is here. It's not without hope though of course as we know. 
Genesis 3.15 is often called a big fancy word. You can, you can use this if you want to impress people later. The proto-evangelium, which is just a big word which means the first gospel. And essentially that's what verse 15 is. As Jesus is laying down the curse, we might say, he says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. As God the Father is speaking to Adam and Eve, he is giving just us just that, the promise that we are now celebrating, or about to celebrate in the weeks to come. This is the first Christmas sermon, we might say. As this God is giving to his his, his son and his daughter Adam and Eve, the promise that all that was once, or excuse me, all that was now fractured, that was now broken because of sin, will one day be repaired through this seed of the woman. And it's interesting to me, it's interesting that Eve and, and Adam, I would say likewise, also were so beholden to this promise that they think that it is fulfilled with the birth of their firstborn son, Cain. Notice verse 1 of chapter 4. It's very fascinating to me how the historian records this for us. And Adam and Eve, or excuse me, and Adam knew his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. It's interesting to note, and it's one that is common throughout church history, that this exclamation that Eve gives at the sign, or at the, excuse me, at the birth of her son, Cain, is literally, you could be translated, I have given birth to a son of Jehovah. Which is essentially, she believes that this firstborn son of hers is the promised seed that was promised to her back in Genesis 3.15. She sees this as the fulfillment of what God was coming to do, that what God would do in her lifetime, which would be the restoring of all things. She sees that in this son Cain, which I think only serves to make the fall from which her hopes fell just that much higher, especially as the rest of the events of chapter 4 unfold. As we know from chapter 2, she gives birth to another son, Abel. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep. But Cain, as it says, was a tiller of the ground. And these two sons, Cain and Abel, they serve a very important purpose for us. Because they are the first, we could say, post-Eden generation. The first post-rebellion generation, we might say. They are perhaps, we could say, the most like you and I. In the sense that they were born into sin. And then we find them approaching the presence of God. Notice verse 3, as it says, And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, very angry. It literally means he's burning with rage. And as it says, and his countenance fell. This, I say, would, would hasten to say that you might be thrown off by a couple of things unless you keep a few particulars in mind as we enter into this study, this study of these couple of verses. As it says in verse number 3, in the process of time, is actually a phrase that really just literally means at an appointed time, as in the Sabbath. 
We know from chapter 2 that the Sabbath was already introduced as a day to keep holy and to rest for all that the Lord has done. And I think an inference in the text is just that. That Cain and Abel had been indoctrinated, had been taught by their mom and dad to keep this Sabbath holy. This is, quote, the appointed time in which they are coming to pay homage and reverence and worship to their Lord. This is a regularly habitual thing that these sons did. It wasn't a random event. It wasn't an event that was just curious or off the wall. This was a regular, regular habitual thing that these two sons did. They knew the time and the means and the place of worship. And I think that that's the one thing that's important to keep in mind. That both Cain and Abel were aware of the same standards. When Cain comes here before God's presence and brings his offering as the fruit of the ground, it wasn't offered out of ignorance. He wasn't being dull. He wasn't being clueless to what God expected of him. Sometimes I think we can imagine that, that he just forgot. That he just was ignorant of what God required. Actually, I think it's more serious than that. That he just refused to acknowledge what God was expecting of him. And therefore, it's not God being petty. When we are told that he had no respect for Cain's offering, it's not a small matter. It's not just something that we can brush aside. At first it might seem like God's being a little bit unfair, but I think as this text unfolds, we'll see that that's not true. This is the most serious of all matters, in fact. As we know from chapter 3, verse 21, Adam and Eve were given the the most (laughs) graphic lesson, we might say, the most graphic Sunday school lesson of all on how to worship their God. Notice verse 21 of chapter 3. And unto Adam also and to his wife the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And here, this is the way in which they are shown how worship is now conducted post-Eden. In this new world of exile that's ridden with sin, their worship and their fellowship of God was totally dependent upon the offering of blood. These animals that were sacrificed for our first parents are a graphic lesson of what God requires. A blood sacrifice. This is where all of their communion was rooted and it was rooted in these coverings and these offerings of blood. And likewise we can say that the sons knew this too. Adam and Eve taught Cain and Abel the way to enter the Lord's presence. And so, therefore, when Cain and Abel enter God's presence on this particular morning, in this process of time, they are demonstrating, I would say, the very heart of everything that we believe. They demonstrate and they represent each of us this morning. And when Abel offers, as, he, as it says there, the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof, he is offering that which is keeping with God's requirements. The, the first of his flock, a lamb that is chosen without, spl- without spot or blemish. This is what he's bringing. This is what he's offering. This is what he's putting on this altar before the Lord's presence. And he approves of it. As it says there, he had respect unto Abel and to his offering. And notice though it says, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. He didn't regard it. He didn't even consider what he was offering as something that was worthy to be in this presence. Which 
I think it begs a couple of things that we have to remember. I think one of the most fascinating things is to note that Cain's offering was an offering from the fruit of the ground, which might seem a simple thing, but I think it's very important to what this whole text is about. He was offering fruits and vegetables, we might say. That's often when you had those Sunday school lessons, perhaps you had those flannel graph little lessons, and you saw Cain there offering his fruits and vegetables on the altar, which meant there was no blood involved. Just, just the pulp of the harvest that he had tilled, that he had cultivated. It was fruits and vegetables, no life, no blood. And it's interesting to note, too, that it's an offering that he cultivated and collected. It's not uh, sort of just something we can pass over. That The historian tells us in verse 2 that Cain was a tiller of the ground. And it says in verse 3 that from that ground he brought of the fruit of it. This is his offering. It's, we could say, the fruit of his own labor. It's something that he has manicured, that he has spent time, blood, sweat, and tears on. And this is what he's bringing before God. It's a fruit of the ground, which is uh, coming from this one who is the tiller of the ground. And so you can see the basis of his acceptance and approval before the Lord is something that he is able to work on. Something that he's able to accomplish is something that he is able to achieve, which is quite different than Abel's offering. As it says, he brings, as it says, the firstlings of his flock. Again, a lamb is here offered for Abel's life, it is in very much indeed a, a vicarious sacrifice, a, a substitute that is taking the place of Abel here in this little moment. Cain is offering something entirely different. He's offering his own works. He's offering his own abilities before this God of all things and is saying, here's what I can offer you. And that's what leads to God turning his back on it. As it says, but unto Cain in verse 5, and to his offering he had not respect. Precisely because Cain is trying to worship God, he's coming into the presence of God on his own terms. On terms he controls. He's not consenting unto God's standard, God's requirements, God's elemental way in which he is now worshipped. Instead, he's saying, I can make my own way, which is quite different than Abel. He is understanding, perhaps even only slightly, of what's going on in this moment. He knew what it meant to worship his Lord and Creator. It was only by blood that it is done. Notice, keep your finger there. Go back to Hebrews, but actually turn to Hebrews 11. Notice what the writer to the Hebrews says here. Hebrews 11 verse 4 is... The verse I would like to draw your attention to. Notice Hebrews 11.4. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts. And by it he being dead yet speaketh. Again notice a more excellent sacrifice. Not because of just the difference between a lamb and pieces of fruit. Because one had blood and the other didn't. 
Here, Abel knew exactly, or perhaps not exactly, perhaps in type and shadow, we might say, what was happening on this altar. There was a sacrifice taking his place. This firstlings of the flock that he is here giving on this altar is now serving his death penalty. The penalty that he deserved again because he was born into sin. It's when that lamb's blood was spilled over that altar that he was given, as it says back in Hebrews, that sign that he was righteous. Precisely because there was a blood of another being spilled on the altar for him. And you see, this is what allows Abel to worship. This is what allows him to have hope. This is what fills him with the righteousness that comes apart from him. That comes outside of him. And this is why God regards and accepts this offering. Because it's an offering of faith. And going back to Genesis 4, Cain sees this as something entirely and wholly unjust. His offering is different, yes. It's, a, it's an offering that he's sort of controlling the terms of. It's one that he is coming up with. But again, he's offering his best fruit of the ground. This, we might say, is his prized pumpkin that's going to win the blue ribbon at the state fair. He's offering the cream of the crop, not just the leftovers. He's offering the best that he can to the Lord. We might hear him say, how is this not good enough? How is this not good enough for you? But as God reminds him, he knew what was required. Notice verse 6 of Genesis 4. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why are you angry? And why is their countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. We see here, God reminds him, you know what it means to do well. And you know what it means that in doing well, you shall be accepted. Cain was dead set. He was dead set on his own way of coming into the presence of God. Coming into this place of worship. Again, that his own toil, that his own efforts, his own ability as the tiller of the ground, he can produce his own offerings by which he can buy his acceptance, by which he can offer them to the Lord, and he can be approved in the sight of God. We have to keep in mind this stark and serious difference between the offerings of Cain and Abel. Abel is an offering of faith. Cain's is an offering of his own blood, sweat, and tears. He's demanding almost that God accept him. And therefore when God turns away and he disapproves of what he has offered, it is crushing Crushing to Cain so much so that he becomes jealous to the point where he rises up and kills his own brother. Notice verse 8. And Cain talks with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. This, you see, is the, we might say, ultimate fruit of Cain's unbelief. 
His disregard of what God had told him through his parents, yes, has come now to bear the fruit, uh, the ultimate fruit of unbelief, which is always, always death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. James 1.15, sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Sin, disbelief, always results in death. And here it's, it's Cain murdering in the first degree, we might say, his own brother. And notice that this is when Abel's blood speaks. We were referencing that back in Hebrews 12, that Abel's blood has a voice. And here it speaks, and God hears it. Notice verse 9, And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And Cain said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he, God, said back to him, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. This blood was serving as a prosecutor, as a witness, indicting Cain for murder and is calling out for justice. Cain failed as the eldest brother here. He failed in many regards and because of his failure he deserves the curse. Such is what the Lord lays down on him. Notice verse 11. And now as the Lord says art thou cursed from the earth which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven out this day from the face of the earth. And from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond of the earth. And it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest anything, uh, any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. This curse that is laid down on Cain's head is one entirely of judgment. His days would be wasted in futility and frustration. I think it is so remarkable that the very ground which Cain had placed all of his hope, all of his ideas of approval and acceptance before the Lord is the very ground which now turns against him. Notice verse 12 again. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. This Man whose identity was the tiller of the ground has the very thing in which his identity was found turned against him. And now he's, as it says, a fugitive, a vagabond, a wanderer who has to live out the rest of his days in restlessness. And no one can even touch him. He's marked, preserved by God, protected by him. Which is itself not a mercy. It is a mercy, but it's also a judgment. (laughs) He lives out the rest of his days knowing that everyone can see him and him for who he is one who takes the blood of another. 
And such is why we see them here, Cain and Abel. These two representatives, these two worshipers who come into the presence of God, they come very differently. And I would hasten to say that each of them represents each of us this morning. Hopefully, you can see perhaps how that they might do that. But I would say Cain and Abel, they portray for us in very vivid contrast the ways in which we strive and we wrestle and we grasp for peace and acceptance and approval in the eyes of God. You come every Sunday perhaps thinking of those ideas. How can I be approved in the eyes of God? We've spent the days and the weeks past uh, sort of feeling our unworthiness, feeling our unsettledness, feeling our unacceptability. We come to church to be reminded, or perhaps we come to church hoping to win it for ourselves. That's the way of Cain. As it says in Jude chapter 1, or the only chapter of Jude, (laughs) verse 11. It references the way of Cain, which is this unbelieving way of those who ascribe to this way of folly. This way that you can till the ground of your own acceptance. That you can manufacture and produce it on your own ability. That you are able to win it for yourself. That this gap. This gulf that exists between you, the sinner, and God is able to be spanned by something you achieve. That's the way of Cain. That wall that kept out those first parents out of the garden. That kept them out of this intimate presence with the Lord that they had so enjoyed. This way of Cain says that wall is penetrable by something I can do. My own toil can do it. My own effort can do it. The way of Cain is the way of man-made religion. Something entirely he cultivates and concocts and then puts it before the Lord and says, Here, is this good enough? And by stark contrast, we see here this morning the way of Abel. Much different, is it not? We might like and we might say that this is the way of faith, but I would like to say that this is the way of blood. This is the way. That we come to church this morning, or at least I pray that you do. It's the way of faith. It's the way of blood. And believers in this way accept God's terms. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Because we see here in vivid black and white, we might say, what are God's terms? How are we approved? How are we accepted? How are we made approvable in his sight? As it's been from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, when those first animals were sacrificed for the sins of Adam and Eve, it's always been because of blood. Notice Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Hebrews 9, 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and, no, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Without blood, it's all useless. Without blood, it's all in vain. Nothing is ever able to achieve what this blood accomplishes. And the blood of that lamb was a blood of a hope. 
A substitutionary blood that was standing in the place of the true and better lamb. And we might say that this is the way that we go to God. This way of Abel. This way of blood. It is none other than what Jesus says in John chapter 14. Which is the way, the truth, and the life. And none come unto the Father but by me. This is the way that we worship the Father this morning. Any other way is false. Any other way that we are hoping to worship and, and pay homage and give of our offerings and our abilities and our, and our minds and our times to God is a dead end. The shed blood of Jesus, as it says in Hebrews 12, the mediator of this new covenant is the only way in which we are allowed to approach our Heavenly Father. In fact, it's such a way that we can approach him with boldness. Notice Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19. Notice what he says. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. Think about what he's saying. You and I this morning, despite our past, despite how reprehensible our lives are, despite how horrid our thought life is. This morning, if you believe in the blood of Jesus, the new, uh, the new uh, or I should say the, covenant, the mediator of this new and better covenant. If you believe in that blood that covers you this morning, you can have boldness to enter into the holiest place of all. The Holy of Holies is what he's referencing. That place that was only reserved for that one time of year by that one person, the high priest, under the old system. He was only allowed there on this very specific set time. And yet, what is this better promise that we have in this better covenant? That we have access to the holiest of all. By this better blood that speaks better things for us. This is the reason why we worship. This is the reason why we assemble at all. Which maybe that should be our question. What does it mean to worship God? Perhaps... Maybe perhaps not explicitly. Perhaps you've been implicitly influenced by the the modern church culture. Which I don't mean to get on a diatribe against that. Because this isn't in my notes. And I might get into a place where I'm in muddy water. (laughs) But I'll just say, I would say this. One of the fallacies of modern church culture is the idea that worship is something we do. It's very consumeristic. It's something that we offer and we're giving God our worship, my friends. Worship is a time in which we remember who we are and who God is. Yes, and that leads to the byproduct and the inspiration of giving to God what we want to give him. Our tithes, our offering, our time, our money, our ability, our skills, our our effort. But much like Cain, we've reversed the order. We give of our time and our money and our effort. But it's nothing but the fruit of the ground that we've tilled ourselves. And we come into the house of God and we say, look at what I'm giving you. 
Look at all this fruit of the ground. Look at how ripe and pristine this cultivated harvest is. Look at how excellent my worship was. My friends, we've reversed the order. Worship happens because blood covers our sins. The blood of another washes us white as snow, as the prophet says. And because we are washed in that blood which streams from Calvary's cross, you and I here this morning, we can worship. We are free to worship. We are free to lift up our voices and sing unto this God, O come, O come, Emmanuel. It's because of blood. You don't have to be scared of that this morning. This idea that your faith is a bloody faith. It doesn't sound very uh, politically correct to say such things. And in fact, some theologians are trying to do away with this idea of blood sacrifices. And I would say if you do away with that, you do away with it all. If you get rid of the idea of a blood atonement, you can take out the whole Bible. Essentially, that's what Hebrews is trying to do, by the way. It's proved to you that all of that was necessary in showing us why this faith is what it is. And yes, we have, yes, a new and a better covenant because of this new and better Jesus. The new and better high priest. The new and the better lamb that was slain for us. We have not to feel uneasy by this idea of blood being so essential to our faith. Because it's our creed. It's the crux of what we believe. You and I are here this morning. We are sitting in these pews and we are singing these hymns and reading these scriptures because we believe. Or maybe you haven't been reminded of this, but I want to remind you this morning. You are here because God bled out for you. Not just a man. Yes, a man did this. The man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and bore your sins and lived the life that we should have lived as sons and daughters of God. And he fulfilled all righteousness. But don't forget that it wasn't just man's blood that was being spilled. It was God's blood. God bled for you. If that doesn't want to make you shout... (laughs) I don't know what will. God bleeds for your sins. And his blood covers a multitude of sins. Infinite sins. Sins past, present, and future are covered under this powerful blood of God. That was shed for you. And all who believe. This is why we are here. This is why we worship. This is why we assemble to be reminded that our sins are covered once for all. And my friends, these are the, quote, better things that the blood of Jesus speaks of. Abel's blood fell to the ground and cried out for justice. Jesus' blood falls to the ground And speaks the words of our redemption. Speaks the words that you are pardoned. And this is the essence of our faith. When we sing that song. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
We are singing. We are putting music to the words which I would say serve as the foundation of everything we believe. We have a faith, a religion of blood. Blood that covers us. Blood that secures our peace and our acceptance and our approval and our absolution before God. So therefore we can sing this morning, nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus, not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what we believe. Or at least I pray that that's what you believe. Which begs the question. Going back to Hebrews 12 and knowing what we know from what he's doing in that particular section. How are you coming to God this morning? How are you walking into church? Are you walking with the fruits of your own labor? Saying, God, accept me because of this. God, accept me and approve me because of this. I haven't missed a day in my devotions. I've memorized all of these verses. I'm wearing my suit and my tie this morning. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm offering. Look at my fruit. Are you coming because blood was spilled for you? Are you coming because God bled out for you? This is the way of worship and life and faith. This is the way of death. My friends, how are you worshiping the Lord this morning? May it be by nothing but this blood of Jesus, the mediator of this new and this better covenant. Let us pray.